Welcome to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Here we will discuss topics related to veterinary business management. From small to large animal, this podcast strives to give you the insight and tools to help you improve your veterinary business. Oculus Insights, supporting businesses where great people want to be. Hi, I'm Mike Powell, and welcome back to another episode of Hire the Smile, episode six. Oh my God, we're almost getting out of the single digits. Hi, Katie. Welcome back. Hey, Mike. <laughs> How's it going? I'm doing really good. So, Hire the Smile. This is our podcast from Oculus Insights about all things related to human resources. So, uh, as usual, Katie and I uh, find an article each. Uh, we talk about it, we sort of apply it to veterinary medicine, and then we end with our human resource wins and fails. So um, we pulled the straw, rock, paper, scissors, maybe, and I'm starting off today. And so this was a really interesting article that came up out of Fast Company, and it's called, What Would Bill Campbell Do? And it was written by Google's former CEO and the co-authors of a book that they wrote and released last year called Trillion Dollar Coach. And I read the book because uh, I've heard about this iconic coaching legend in Silicon Valley. And uh, I was fascinated because he's worked with so many people, um, every, you know, the who's who's of Silicon Valley. And so, you know, he started his career as a head football coach at Columbia University, and then he entered the business world at the uh, ripe old age of 39, and he rose to executive positions at Apple and then CEO role at Claris, going into it. And then he just became an executive coach to a, a large number of Silicon Valley uh, executives. And again, everybody sort of asked, what would Bill do? He just is this icon who influenced probably more you know, of our business leaders now than anybody else. And so I, I read the book and I would recommend it to anybody. And, but so what I thought I would go with some of the, you know, they're looking at it, you know, like, you know, we have this pandemic going on, the world's a little bit crazy. And so, you know, they're always asking, what would Bill do? So Bill was an executive coach or you went to Bill now as a company leader and say, Bill, I need some guidance. What are the key things you would focus on? So his number one thing is the top priority, it's the people. The top priority of any leader is the well-being and success of their people. And, you know, they, they thought if he would say, hey, you know what? People's lives are in a people. They, know to, they need to know that the manager and company leadership has their back. So, you know, as he said, you know, you know, managers are leaders. We work on strategies, plans, processes. But none of these matter if our people aren't well. So really take care of your people and thoughts katie i mean just i got a few of these so jump in anytime you want no i feel like that goes without saying yeah no exactly i guess it's still kind of shocking to me how often people don't care about their people and we'll kind of get to that when we talk about my article a little bit but your business is there because of your people no matter what and we need to remember that for sure Second point he brought up, and this is one I've got some good examples here, is lead with empathy. Mm. And so he says, you know, begin every day, every speech, every team meeting with a reflection on our our shared humanity. We got to know that we're people and we care about others. You know, they bring up that we always want to jump in and get to work. And, but, you know, step back a bit. And I can think of some examples. I know with some vets that within my own organization, uh, but we've also, in some other companies that we've worked for, they just come in right in the morning. There's no good morning. There's like, 
right off the bat, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, we've got to do that. And really the, the better thing is to come in and, you know, give a minute or two to say, good morning, how are you? Mm-hmm. You know, and something momentous happened in the world, let's talk about it. If you know something about the people that you work with, ask them about it, not just let's get down to work. Uh, it gets off-putting. Definitely. And I think um, the interesting thing that I'm thinking about here is uh, people can tell whether you're being authentic or not. So if you're, you go in and you're like, how's everybody doing? And you, people can tell if you're just saying that because a management book yeah. told them that they should be interested in their people. You have to kind of develop this pattern of caring. <laughs> I mean, you have to start yeah. somewhere, but uh, it's really important to actually care about what people are talking about and what people are telling you. Which is the best way to jump into the next point is be a great listener. Just listen, you know, be in the moment, be present. Um, and that's kind of what their comments were about how good Bill was, is that he always listens. And I think, you know, if you're going to go in and ask everybody is, and then just keep on walking mm. by, you know, like you're asking, you got to stop, you got to listen, um, and you got to show that you really care. Absolutely. Yep. And I think that's really ties into the next point that, especially at a time of crisis, for us and our, our employees, our businesses to succeed is they need to know that their leaders and colleagues actually care about them. So, you know, really worry, you know, really focusing on employee care. You know, there's a lot of, uh, I speak on our own business, and, you know, being in Canada, we're asking our staff to be very sensitive if they think that they have any symptoms uh, to go get tested and don't come back to work until the negative results. And so we've had a number of these and I'm knocking on what as I say that all of them have come back negative. Mm-hmm. But you know, we have a policy, for example, of giving people five days of sick days. So and there's five days of personal days, which I guess they can use as sick days. But what we have told them is, you know, we're not going to count the days we've asked you to take off because you're waiting for a test uh, as a sick day. Uh, to me, it really doesn't incentivize people to be doing the right thing. You know, their priority should be the health, and the, our yeah. priority should be their health and the health of the business. And if you're going to penalize them by saying, "Well, these counters are sick days," you're not really being sincere in your concern for them. And so we've announced that, like, hey, if you, you know, we've had people that have had to take three tests, and so they've probably have lost a total of six, seven, eight days. We're not counting them. You know, we want you to say, hey, I'm not feeling right because, boy, we don't want them to be sick. We don't want the rest of the people to get sick. And ultimately, it's best for our business. Definitely. And I mean, it moves the uh, perception of what's important to you from the company and the business. And obviously, the clients are important, but they're going to understand the circumstances. But if you, you know, if you're sort of draconian and you say you must use your sick days for these, I mean, that's not a really nice message to send. That means I care about more about the company than I care about you. Absolutely. For sure. Next one he talked about is when confronted with a problem, they would say Bill wouldn't dig into the problem. He would dig into the into the team. You know, he'd ask who's working the problem, how are they working together. Uh, you know, he'd often say you can't get anything done without a team. So how is the team doing? And they have a little description. And they said there's a phrase going around Silicon Valley. I'll take their word for it. But I thought this was an interesting analogy or metaphor. While all of us are in the same storm, COVID. We are each in different boats. Yep. And so individual employees should be given the flexibility to take the time and actions necessary to ensure their health 
and well-being of that and their family. And boy, that that's really true because you know we're not all sharing the same burdens. You know, I'm thinking now it's the beginning of September. People are going back to school. We've got a number of mothers in our in our organization, and boy, are they stressed about sending their kids back to school. Everybody's a little bit different, and I, you know, just there's not a one size fits all in this in this pandemic. So I think you've got to look at the team, look at the individuals in the team, and, and give everybody the latitude to do what's best for them and their family. I think that will be returned in spades and, and loyalty to the company. Absolutely, and I mean we've talked about we talked about this last podcast and in previous podcasts where work life balance or what people need isn't the same. And even within, you know, people with children, their situations are different depending on how old the kids are and what their childcare situation is. So we need to be empathetic to to that. Absolutely. And then he says, have a plan. And you know, that's one of the things when this all came out, one of our first <laughs> podcasts and discussions is have a plan. Uh, just don't make rash decisions. And yes, things are changing. It's um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty, but you know, what he's recommends is what he would have recommended rather is have a plan for at least the next year. And that assumes the current situation is more or less unchanged. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and I read that and I was like patting myself on the back, like, way to go, Mike, because that's basically what we did is sort of said it started in March. We're going to plan until next April and to see where we are. And I think when we get to the end of the year, we have a better idea of second waves and when vaccines are going to show up, what have you, we'll probably prolong that to, you know, the end of next year to say, okay, what is the, what are the various scenarios? And so I think, and mm-hmm. you know, having a plan, realizing that it's fluid, don't make any permanent decisions based on what we're doing right now, but, you know, have that thoughtfulness. And I think when you get to your article, I think this, this section will really resonates. The last, second to last one is just to be honest, you know, tell people the facts, uh, trust that you can handle it, don't sugarcoat it, don't try to protect their feelings, what have you, just, you know, people are adults, they can handle it, they know weird things are are happening out there, so uh, tell them the truth. What I really like uh, is uh, be a constant cheerleader for your team, we're all going through things. And so, you know, in the face of challenges, people still need the support of encouragement and acknowledgement that they've done great things. So, you know, be a cheerleader. Let them know they can do it. When, when someone does somebody something remarkable, don't just nod and mutter, great job. Like, get excited and get the team excited because little victories mean a lot more now than they would have, you know, seven months ago. So let's go a little bit overboard. But again, as you said earlier, if you're really being fake about it, people yeah. are going to see through you. So you got to be genuine. Yeah. Doesn't your article um, talk about how this coach, when he was uh, executive coach, when he was in management, he would like stand up and give people a standing ovation when they did something good or, or whatever. So you can't go Absolutely. from like zero to like you're at a football game. <laughs> Maybe work your way up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Stage your excitement. Exactly. Yes. And the last one he talked about that I, I liked is talking about the decision-making process. You know, we have a lot of uncertainties and find the right process to make decisions. And, you know, when, when a question comes up and somebody asks you a question is, you know, hey, I haven't heard this before. We've got to figure it out. Um, you know, give an answer of, you know, maybe it's a bit more superficial or a softer answer than you may want to give, uh, give but maybe suggest like, wow, haven't heard that. Great insight. We're going to go back. We're going to discuss it. I'll get back to you. And then you'll have a more thoughtful and more engaged answer. But, you know, 
work a process to get the right answer. Sometimes the decision might not be the right one, but at least having this process, I mean, no matter what process you have, there's no guarantee the decision-making is going to be spot on all the time. But having a good process will reduce the variability in that decision-making process. So For sure. It allows you to sort of go back and see, you know, if the decision ended up ultimately not being the right one, you can go back and see, okay, what step of the, in what step of the process did we go wrong or did we err or was it just out of our control? 100%. Yeah. And I know we've had some of our webinars with the, our COVID resilience guide. Uh, I can think of one in particular with Whitney Hishier, a professor at the Berkeley School of Business and talking about decision-making process. And she spent a lot of time talking about our own internal biases and how those influence our decision-making. And, and so I think that's where it's good to go back at the decision-making process and just realize where our biases maybe have stepped in when they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And then the last point, and I think we're both living testimonials on it, is to take care of yourself. You can't be a great leader if you are not and so we're just as vulnerable to the stresses uh, as anybody else on the team of what's going on. So we got to make sure ourselves are like, we got to check, check in to make sure we're okay, take a vacation, close the laptop at night, just like get away. And I know um, my wife and I, she's a partner, one of the partners in our vet practice, you know, since March 16th, we've just been going flat out and, you know, of course we get our weekends off, but it's just been working, working, working because of all of this. And, Oh boy, towards the middle of August, we're both saying, you know what, we need a break. Like, mm-hmm. I'm tired. She's tired. I said, you know, it's probably not going to be the, I'm probably not doing the best for the people that we work with if I'm tired. Or, you know, we've got to set an example too. We can't tell everybody else to take care of themselves that we're not. Yeah. So we've taken a few days. We're going to take a, uh, another few more days off and, you know, not you know, more of a staycation. We can't go anywhere. But boy, we unplug when we, when we take those days off. And I know I took four days off earlier this week. And big difference. Definitely. And guaranteed, if you think you need your, a day off or you need some time off, your staff thinks that like a thousand percent. So just saying. <laughs> no, I, I remember once, maybe it was you or somebody else, but I remember once I'd come in on some Mondays and I was just cranky, really cranky. It was usually after I had been traveling on business or if I spent a few days away and I come into the office and, and finally people said to me, like, you know, when you come in after a trip away on business, like you're, you're really disruptive and you're a bit of an a-hole. So I have since learned that after a trip away, I, I actually worked from home that day just to give me that, you know, integration back into the job and other people uh, before I meet with them. So, yeah, we all, if you have a good staff, they're going to tell you when your behavior is not the best. Definitely. Well, you would hope that you've created a, a environment of trust. See what I did there? <laughs> oh, what a segue. So good. Yeah. You're getting good at this. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else you want to say? about your article no i'm excited i love your article so i'm, I'm excited to hear your your insights on her Ooh, okay yeah it was a long one uh okay so the article that uh we chose for me is in harvard business review it's called begin with trust uh by francis frey and ann morris and they are the authors of a book of the same name begin with trust so this is a really interesting, um, I feel like it's it's beyond an article. It's more of like a learning lesson type of a thing, uh, but it goes really well with what we were just talking about. So um, 
basically, just to, to give the background, uh, Francis uh, Frey was asked to go into Uber in 2017 when they were really going through uh, their tumultuous time as far as uh, public uh, perception went. And, um, you know, the things were going on, like when the taxi drivers in New York City went on strike in 2017, Uber swooped right in and really scooped up a lot of the business, uh, which wasn't a popular thing. Uh, they had an engineer in 2017, female engineer, who blogged about her experience of harassment and discrimination at Uber. So not wonderful. Uh, and there were numerous other examples of um, how they were a, quote, win at all costs company. So they would sort of do whatever it took to win, which I think is not uh, necessarily an odd thing from a startup company. But when you ramp up as quickly and involve as many people as Uber did, I think that, uh, you know, it's definitely problematic. You know, there were safety issues, uh, both drivers and passengers worried about their safety, et cetera, et cetera. So um, spring 2017, Francis goes in to see if she can help. She meets with Travis uh, Kalanick, who was the CEO at the time. Uh, you know, she said that she was sort of sitting in the um, the conference room waiting for Mr. Kalanick to come in and, you know, all worried and and about his his reputation, which had preceded him, about him being a tyrant and being difficult to work with. And he walks in the room and he is reticent and he is, you know, saying, okay, well, I know that I have some blind spots here. I'm just not sure what to do about it. Um, you know, and she could see sort of right off the top that his personal values weren't necessarily aligned with what was happening at Uber. So, and this is where I thought it was maybe a bit of a cop out to some extent, but he acknowledged he put people in roles they weren't trained or mentored for. So when you have a manager, and I mean, we see it in vet practices all the time, we've talked about it before, where you put somebody in a position of authority or of, of greater responsibility and just hope that they're going to swim and not sink. Uh, that's not a good thing. And you can imagine how huge Uber was and the probably the number of people that that was happening to. Um, you know, that's, it's a really difficult place to be. So uh, anyway, the upshot is that uh, Mr. Kalanick uh, was sort of willing to do whatever it took. So what the consultants did is they zeroed in on trust. Obviously, they wrote a book called Begin With Trust. It's kind of their jam. Uh, and they assert that trust is one of the most essential forms of capital a leader has. And, you know, I think any of us who have been in the management position, you can kind of look back at points where you let a team of an entire team or a single team member down and how crappy you felt about that. Uh, and you know, the, the process that it takes to build that trust back up is arduous and you just feel, you know, you're kicking yourself, um, for letting that happen. So basically what they say is, uh, you need to sort of look at it from an enlightened perspective. So you need to be able to empower other people. You need to be able to, teach people and pass your legacy along, create space for others to be successful. It's, I hate to say it, uh, but as practice owners and as managers, it's not all about you and your ideas. People aren't there to serve you. I know it's hard for you to hear, but um, you know, you, people aren't there just to serve you, you know, and I always thought as a manager, I'm there to clear, clear the path for people so that they can be successful. Anyway, these, this concept is called empowerment leadership. Is there anything you want to say about this before we move on, Mike? No, this is great. No, I just, okay. um, I'm a bit of a believer in this anyhow, but it was, it just, I just like the way how they um, put, put this all together. So. 
definitely makes sense for sure. So um, they they talk about this concept of foundational leadership capital. So they say there are three drivers of trust that it takes to build this foundational leadership capital. Uh, the three drivers are, are authenticity, logic, and empathy. So authenticity uh, really centers around whether people feel like they're act- interacting with the real version of you or not. You know, are you putting on a show? Are you a different person when you walk in the office than you are with your family? Uh, or are you different between different teams? You know, are, are they walking in and they're getting the real you? So the second one, logic people having faith in your judgment and your competence to get things done. Uh, And the third empathy, our favorite uh, trait. So people want to feel that you care about them. And this harkens back to the article that you were just talking about, Mike, and how people want to know that you care and that you're invested in what's going on with them. So what Francis and Anne say is that you need to find your quote, trust wobble. That's their term. Uh, You need to think about a recent moment when you weren't trusted as as much as you wanted to be. And this, this is where it takes self-awareness. And of course, self-awareness light bulbs going off all over the place for me as they always do. Uh, But you really need to look at the person who, who doubted you. So, you know, if you had somebody who said, Ooh, I am not sure that I trust you to get this project done. So I'm just going to do it myself. Like, okay, well, what, what was it that they did? Like, why didn't they trust me to get it done? Um, You need to be able to take their, their comments to heart. So, you know, you think about what was their issue? Um, Did they think that you misrepresented yourself and that you weren't the best person to move forward with the project? If so, that's an authenticity wobble. Uh, If you put your own interests first, that's an empathy wobble. Uh, And if you doubted your ability to execute, that is a, a logic wobble. So three kinds of wobbles. You need to kind of look at what you did and what's happening. Um, And then they say, look at a few examples of your trust wobbles. So is there a pattern? You know, when you get feedback from your team or from a manager or from an owner or whoever it is, is there a pattern to that feedback that you get? Uh, And does the pattern change under stress or with different stakeholders? So, you know, your staff, um, the folks who um, you're helping and who are clearing a path for, do they have different feedback for you versus higher management? Uh, you know, and if you're under stress, you're going to react differently. Uh, so that's something that they tell you, that, tell us that we need to keep in mind as well. Um, they also suggest, and this is always a fun thing, pick a partner to help you diagnose and work through your trust wobbles. Um, you know, share a few examples with your diagnosis, you know, X happened and this is the feedback I got and this is what I think is wrong and bounce it off them and see uh, what they think and whether they think that your diagnosis is correct or not. And that we really need to take responsibility for, for feedback. I mean, um, I know I, uh, about a year and a half ago, somebody mentioned to me that uh, feedback and, and all comments are really just information and we really can't take it too personally. And I think that where we err as managers or, you know, as people is we get feedback and we just are automatically defensive. We're like, Oh, well, that's not what I meant. Or I didn't, I'm not that type of person or you're, you, I'm sorry that you felt that way. It's like, well, that's not taking responsibility. So they're saying that, that uh, you really need to be able to take responsibility and, and you would be challenged. You know, the challenge would be that you have to be in that enlightened state of being able to say, okay, I really want to work on myself here. I need to self coach myself. Any comments, Mike? 
No, I just, and I, I, I like that because that sort of reminds me of all the, the non-apologies that we hear that are coming out now with Me Too moment and moments and, and discriminatory practices at businesses. And it's always like, I'm sorry that somebody was offended by what I said. Yeah. As opposed to saying, like, I'm sorry I got caught. Yeah, basically <laughs> yeah. is what they're saying, yeah. A good thing about the Me Too movement, I mean, there's lots of good things, but I think our our tolerance for bullcrap at that level is very low. You know, like we're, you know, we can definitely sniff out that inauthentic apology from a mile away. Yeah. Okay, so the article goes on um, to talk about overcoming the wobbles, the basic of the three wobbles that you might have. Um, so when they talk about the first one, they talk about the empathy wobble. So they say it's common among people who are analytical and driven to learn. They just don't have any patience. So, you know, they, they've got what they needed and they, they don't want to hear anything else you have to say because you answered their question or they just feel like they, they are on top of whatever it is that's being talked about. These folks often are distracted by their devices so they're checking their phones, they're, you know, tapping their fingers on the table, all, all behaviors that tell everybody else that they're not as important as the device person. So, um, you know, I, I feel like we all know this type of person, you know, in a meeting, they might disengage, they might go to the point of being distracted and rude, like a toddler who has an excuse. Uh, but an adult doesn't have an excuse for that type of behavior. Um, you know, once they understand or they get what they want from somebody, they just disengage. That reminded me of the one example I gave from the person that just comes in and just says, okay, we got to do this, 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 and that. Uh, let's not talk about how you are. Yes. Take a step back. Put an asterisk there with MP comment because I had a feeling you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's that feeling of, you know, like my agenda is the most important agenda. I don't give a crap about you. And uh, let's just keep, go let's just go on and, and on a Monday morning and I'm going to pile all this stuff on you that I need to do. And I need you to do for me. It's just like the worst having been in that position. It's the worst. So the solution that they talk about, you know, if you find yourself having an empathy wobble as a leader is focus on making sure that others get what they need in a meeting. So making sure that others are heard, you know, not disengaging, like, okay, your part's over, but how can you help others get the most from the meeting? Or how can you help them contribute the most? That sort of servitude, this servitude leadership type of, of concept. Uh, and finally, put your damn phone away also. Uh, and I know, I remember at Mickey panel when um, the edict came down that we all need to put our phone away and we all, we all, not just us two, but sometimes maybe one party of us two had a really hard time putting their phone away, putting their computer away and really focusing in on what was happening in the moment and respecting that everybody else is putting their time and their mental effort in, you know, just put your darn phone away. Any comments about empathy before we move on? Uh, just this to me is one of our, our biggest issues and it, it's become such a norm in society. It's almost like whenever we have a, a new venture mm -hmm. starts for our practice or a new employee, that's one example we always give is, you know, maybe with your demographic, it's fine just to pull your phone out or have conversations with people in the same room on your phone. But, you know, it's just not appropriate because it just sends that meaning, that message of the person I'm with on this phone is more important to you. Because I really love it when you're out to dinner with people and somebody gets a phone call and then they start responding. You're like, wow, I feel so good about this. I'm just so good. So I guess that's one of my pet peeves. Uh, yeah, you're a convert there. The second wobble that they tackle is the logic wobble. 
Um, and that's the one where people don't trust your judgment. So uh, overcoming this, they say to go back to the data. So make sure that you have sound evidence and that you openly talk about what you know to be true beyond a reasonable doubt. I thought that was really uh, an interesting thing to throw in there because some, you know, we spend a lot of time kind of blue skying and, and making up stories. And even this is, you know, when we have a breakdown in communication and uh, we're dealing with people, we make up this whole fanciful story about why they did the thing they did. We're not looking at the data. We're not thinking about what's true beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, when we start doing that, when we're supposed to be talking about something we know about, people can pick up on that right away. And that's something that definitely will erode trust. So they suggest that uh, you expand your knowledge and learn from other people and that learning from other people, particularly within your own organization is so key because it helps build that trust as well. It's like, you know, I, I don't know everything, you know, somebody who's 20 years younger than me, which I can't believe I can say that you have people, uh, you know, that are that young that are in the workforce compared to my age, but, you know, 20 year people who know more about social media, they know more about the iPhone or whatever it is, or, you know, something a, a technical, um, somebody that's been out of vet school and they've learned something new in vet school since you were there, whatever the case may be, you know, solicit them for information. And it's really going to build that trust because you're coming to them and saying, you know, something I don't know. And I really value your opinion and value your knowledge, but it really takes, you know, that emotional intelligence and the self-awareness of assuming that you don't know everything, which can be difficult for people. You know, I, I can think of uh, a time in the last couple of years where somebody asked me a question and I totally like BS to the answer. And I still feel like an idiot about it. I don't think they probably remember it, but I was like, okay, well, no, it's okay to say, I don't know, or it's okay to say, I'm not up to speed on that or whatever the case may be, you know, just assume that you don't know everything and people don't expect you to know everything either. And then this is a interesting, the last point they talk about uh, in the logic wobble was in, is interesting as well, because they talk about delivery being an issue. So you might, you might be a, a SME, a subject matter expert at something, but if you deliver it ineffectively, then uh, people might not trust you. They might not believe they actually know what you're talking about. So, you know, if they talk about um, a, a solution for this is come out of the gate with like your big idea first say, you know, this is my assertion, this is my hypothesis, or this is what I found, and then back all that up with the data after. So don't like build up, you know, like a story about something and then have your point at the end, throw out your point at the beginning, and then back it up, yeah. you know, and, and use facts. And uh, something that I learned as well is how to sort of, and I'm not good at it at when I talk, which is evident at this particular <laughs> moment, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're putting together like a report or you're putting, even putting an email together, or you need to deliver to something to people in a staff meeting, really paying attention to how you're delivering it and the information you're giving and getting rid of stuff that is fluff and that isn't necessary um, and not repeating yourself, all of that, you know, being concise and being clear can really help other people trust that you are, you know, what you're talking about, you know, what you're doing. 100%. All right. So the last wobble is the authenticity wobble. And this is an interesting one. This is where uh, people can feel like they're not accessing the real you. So uh, what the author suggests is thinking about how different your presence at work is from your presence with your family and your friends or yourself outside of work. What, when you're suppressing what your real self is, what payoff is there? Like, is it, is it worth it enough? And they talk about situations where you might have a workplace where, you know, you are 
your sexuality is non-binary and it might, the workplace might not be one where that would necessarily be welcome, uh, which is definitely a different podcast, but something that's, that's important. It might not be a great idea for you to, to not suppress yourself in that situation, but you know, in a situation where it would be of a benefit to show your real self, they say that that is, is something that's very important because people can sniff out when it's the wrong mm-hmm. you. And I mean, this kind of oozes into that, what we were talking about before, where, you know, coming in and all of a sudden after five years, you're interested in everybody, like people can pick up on that right away that that's not the real you, but you can definitely develop a pattern of trust. Uh, you can rebuild that pattern. So they talk about also teams. And I thought this is actually very interesting, you know, being careful, you know, even if we put together a diverse team of people, so people with different backgrounds, people with different levels of knowledge or different uh, knowledge about different subjects, we put them all together And as humans, we tend to like try and look for the commonalities between us. So, you know, in a team that's really diverse, you might actually really have a homogenous outcome from the team that might not be as rigorous as it would be if you managed carefully and made sure that the diversity was was nurtured and that everybody wasn't expected to knuckle down. Um, But we need to be, uh, as managers, we need to look at different perspectives and really seek that out. Uh, do you have any thoughts or, about that? No, I think you, you've covered it all. I just, I love this whole sequence because just before you and I started, got on the phone to record this or started talking about this, I was, I'm, preser- I'm preparing a presentation for a, a technician's group on managing and times of change. And I was trying to find that clarifying point. And this article sort of like, you know what, if you did all three of these things well, the empathy, authenticity, and the logic, Boy, that right there is a framework to manage yourself and your team in these uncertain times. And I just thought this is spot on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the last concept that they talk about, uh, which I feel like could be the hardest part for a lot of us is trusting yourself. So where are you, where do you wobble in relation to yourself? You're asking that in, in a, in a profession full of imposter syndrome candidates. Wow. Wow. Totally. I mean, yeah. Big time. Uh, you know, so they talk about, are you are you being honest with yourself and your ambition? You know, are you being authentic with yourself about what it is you want to do? On the empathy side, are you actually um, acknowledging your own needs and attending to them? So like we were talking about before, about taking vacation, et cetera. Are you being uh, empathetic with yourself? And uh, do you lack conviction in your own ideas and your ability to form? You know, that's a logic wobble with yourself as well. So, you know, it really uh, underlines the introspection and the reflection that needs to happen uh, in order to improve trust. Uh, anyway, I thought that was a really good um, sort of mm-hmm. synopsis of, of trust. I hadn't really thought about it so specifically before. So in the case of Uber, uh, obviously they, they discovered giant empathy issues. Um, the explosive aggressive growth meant that, um, you know, caring about the individual was really swept under the rug or just wasn't honored. Uh, there were long-term questions about sustainability, whether managers had skills to lead. So that was an, a, a logic wobble. And then that war room mentality of winning at all costs, uh, that was an authenticity battle because, you know, as the CEO said, this isn't who I am, but this is sort of what has happened and I don't like it. Um, so uh, they'd had a number of different initiatives at Uber. 
They did an internal investigation on harassment and discrimination. They enabled driver tipping functionality so that the drivers got more money and felt uh, like they weren't just sort of working for the man. Uh, They introduced new personal safety features for drivers and for passengers. And they actually, this is my favorite one, they rewrote their cultural values and used all the input of their 15,000 drivers at the time um, to come up with, with their values. And uh, they told everybody that they had to put their phones away. (laughs) And lastly, and this is, I think, the most impressive one for me, is they put a huge effort behind uh, developing an in-house management training for their managers. So, you know, having to tackle this across the globe with people of various backgrounds, uh, but they, they managed to do it. They managed to put training together. I think it, it took like a year to get through it or something like that. So at that time, at least in 2017, 2018, uh, this is what uh, what Uber was doing and and built up that trust. And that CEO actually left. We should be a little bit clearer. He, he didn't leave. He was asked to leave very forcefully. <laughs> well, right. Got the boot, as we would say. Like getting kicked off the network when you're on a computer. He got the boot. Um, but I, I think, you know, still respect although I did find it a little inauthentic about him saying, you know, these aren't my values and this is what happens, you know, as I said at, at the beginning of the article, but at least uh, he allowed this to have this investigation to happen while he was still there. The end. Yeah. I think that's a great article. There's so many great insights for that practices. You just, I think anybody's listening to it or just sit there and go, mm-hmm. oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've seen that. Oh yeah. Do that. Oh, do that. Yeah, I got to work on that. Yeah. Um, this is spot on. So. Yep. All of these articles in the podcast, that's for sure. So I know you only have a few more minutes, Katie, because you've got to get on to uh, a client call. So let's just do our wins and fails. I can start first. Okay. My win um, was was a big cable company in Quebec, in Canada. And they were just offered about $9 billion to buy them from a U.S. base in partnership with Mm. another company in Ontario. And the head of the company just said, no, um, you know, that's a lot of money. But what we're here for is to create not shareholder value, which is taking care of who owns the company, but stakeholder power. So we want to take care of our communities and our employees. And we don't feel doing that will be benef- will, will happen if we're in foreign hands. So I was just awesome. Like, we take care of our own and your money doesn't need anything. Wonderful, yeah. It helps when they're already they're already billionaires as a family, but many yeah. other people would sell for a lot fewer reasons. So good for them. And then my fail is, and this is just one of my pet peeves. We talk about businesses, customer service, taking care of their employees. So I had to bring in my car to the dealership, and they all send the surveys afterwards. And this goes back into your we're talking about authenticity. Mm-hmm. is all they really want is you to give them an amazing score. If you don't give them an amazing yes. score, they don't actually want your review. So they don't actually want any feedback that would actually help them be better to treat, you know, treating their customers better. They just want the best possible score because that's how they get bonuses and pays and raises and commissions, what have you. It, I just, it just annoys me so much. That's my fail. If you're going to ask a question, mean it. Totally. I remember when I bought my car, the they went as far to say, if you can't give us 10 out of 10 on everything, give us a call first. Yeah. 
And, yeah. you know, it was yeah. like, well, I actually ended up not having the greatest experience. So I didn't, and I never got any follow-up, but I, you're right. It's really skeevy that when they do that, like we all know, but, and it I mean, they must know. So I don't know. Cheese balls. Okay. Yep. So my fail, uh, my good friend McDonald's. So this article, more than 50 black former McDonald's franchise owners are suing the burger chain, saying the company steered them to less profitable restaurants that didn't give them the same support and opportunities given white franchisees. So uh, they allege that the black franchisees were steered towards stores in inner city neighborhoods with lower sales volumes and higher security and insurance costs. Uh, they alleged the company would provide them with misleading financial information or push them to decide quickly when a store became available. Um, and then they were, they alleged they were asked to rebuild or remodel within a very short time frame. Um, they weren't given rent relief or other financial support that white franchisees were given. Um, and that black franchise owners were also denied the chance to buy more profitable stores in better neighborhoods. So basically the upshot was that, um, they say their average sales were about $2 million a year, the, the 50 um, franchise owners that were part of this lawsuit. Uh, and the average in the US is 2.7 million. So they were you know, $700,000 below the average as a group. And they talk about, uh, you know, the attorney who's representing the group said, you know, it's revenue at McDonald's is determined by one thing and one thing only, location. You know, a Big Mac is the same everywhere but location really determines who is going to make money. So, um, you know, kind of, it goes on, but I think that that's, I mean, I applaud, I, I'm glad that it's coming forward. And obviously this is a lawsuit that just been filed. It hasn't been, McDonald's hasn't commented, et cetera, et cetera, other than to say we are not discriminatory. Uh, but McDonald's has a history of uh, discrimination towards black franchisees, you know, all the way back to uh, sort of the beginnings so not a great story, um, really disgusting. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see sort of how this plays out. I guess it comes to the theme is anything you're trying to hide is going to come out. Totally. That's the age we live in now. <laughs> yeah. You can only put concealer on the zit for so long. <laughs> That's the other way about it, looking at it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my good news, uh, and of course I don't pick an HR one because I go to this good news network and I just pick one that I like. So uh, this is an article from a gentleman who had a snowboarding accident and he had a spinal injury. So he, you know, he's like, I'm still an outdoors person. I can't walk, but I still want to go outside and I want to be able to spend time out there and I want to do it in a little bit of a rugged way like I used to. So what he did was he started out designing wheelchairs that offered greater versatility than traditional models. And then he was like, I need to take this a little step further. I mean, a wheelchair has obvious limits, but what he did was he created a line of purpose-built bikes for people with physical limitations. And there are some pictures in this article of like the stuff that these bikes are doing <laughs> makes my, like my stomach go like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this at all. Um, so it's called the bowhead reach is the name of the bike. The main wheel is located in the rear. There's heavy tread tires. Uh, there's help with an electric motor. It's basically a souped up reverse tricycle that can go pretty much everywhere. It's recumbent. Uh, it can go up a mountain and down a mountain. Uh, it can go out on the street. So I thought it was really cool. That's really cool. He's adapting the bikes for quadriplegics as well. So, you know, I uh, love it. 
Just love it. Yeah, cool. Katie, thank yes. you. I love your article. Um, uh, have a great vacation, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Sounds great. Thanks, Mike. At Oculus Insights, we care a lot about animals, but we also care about the health of the veterinary profession. Our goal is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success.